I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Jeremy Green, a professor of medicine and the history of medicine at Johns Hopkins University and author of the new book, The Doctor Who Wasn't There, Technology, History and the Limits of Telehealth. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me here today, David. So first of all, how did you come to be both a practicing physician and a historian and almost sociologist of 20th century medical practice? I don't have a good straight answer for that one. It's not a, a uniform plan that I had when I was in high school, but I entered medical school as fascinated with the social dimensions of what health, healing, and care were as with the biological sciences and technological developments. And so I was fortunate to go to a medical school that had a department of social medicine, which has a long history in American medicine, but is still a relatively minor strain in the overall fabric of the way academic medicine understands itself. But I trained with historians and anthropologists and sociologists from my first year medical school. And you know, and as a first year medical student, it was in the 90s and it was in this awkward moment when the FDA and the FDC had just relaxed rules on direct to consumer pharmaceutical advertising. And you could tell that everyone felt a little bit strange about the fact that prescription drugs were now being advertised to the general public. And there were Viagra billboards and advertisements happening during Major League Baseball games. And it was an awkwardness. And so I went across to, you know, from the medical school I was training at to the business school at the same university and found in the basement of the library just these historical records of pharmaceutical marketing. And I became really interested in this question. Why was it that we came to think of drug advertising as something that was suitable only for physicians? And began realizing that I couldn't answer that question on my own, not with just the training I was getting in medical school. But there was a really important question to get to the bottom of there. And to do so, I needed to learn how to be a historian. And so I applied for a PhD program right in the middle of medical school, kept up a clinical practice, did a PhD, and that dissertation turned into my first book. But I can't really recommend this as a plan for anybody. It's just, this is how it happened to me. But on a daily basis, I go back and forth between the clinic, the library, the classroom, and I find all three parts of these reinforce themselves and the way I understand the world. And that's very evident in your work, which is focused, again, on the practice of medicine and how patients experience it. And in your most recent book, which was just published by the University of Chicago Press, The Doctor Who Wasn't There, you give a history of the use of telecommunications technologies in medicine, starting with the telephone and then including two-way television, beepers, cell phones, and computers. How did you come up with the idea for the book? And what common themes do you see in the use of the technologies? So I feel very fortunate to be able to work in a community health center here in Baltimore. And every week I encounter working with the patients that I get to see, things I don't expect. And also, you know, working side by side with other practitioners, physicians, nurse practitioners, medical assistants, see some of the joys and also some of the frustrations of the job. So on the one hand, I've been watching for the past decade or so as the medium of medicine, right? The place in which we do and record our tests and you know chart our findings shifted during my tenure as a physician from being one that was dominantly paper to one that is now dominantly electronic. And I see a combination of incredible enthusiasm about what that might mean, right? And also extraordinary frustration sense of burnout, feeling that the actual work of doctoring has been cheapened in the exchange. And I found a journal article from the late 19th century projecting many of these same hopes and fears on the newly discovered telephone. And so realizing on the one hand as a historian that oftentimes when we talk about technologies, we accept the claims of those who develop or promote the technology that they transform the world in blindingly new ways and that they're fundamentally radical, disruptive innovations that will change everything. But that if we look back in time, there's been many things that promise to do that. And especially if we look at what is electronic medicine, what are the electrical or electronic media of medical care, that going back, you know, looking at the early computer, looking at early uses of cable television, looking at uses of radio, going back to the telephone, 
one finds these iterative claims that medicine was suddenly going to be electronic and suddenly be available to everyone. So the short answer to your question is that we're living through a moment of a substantial media shift that everyone sees and feels. And this is even before the pandemic. And when the pandemic hit, so many of us were suddenly jerked into telemedical care or telemedical you know, realities. But this has happened before in different ways. And we learned to forget both the, the things that we think of as old technologies were once new. We've also learned to forget that each of those new technologies, when it was new, came with all kinds of promises, many of which didn't come to pass at all. And so taking that back into the present day, I think that we need to view these outsized hopes and perhaps oversized fears with a historical perspective in that oftentimes what really changes when a new technology is introduced into medical practice is not what is promised at all, but something kind of lateral, unexpected, something far more mundane and something that we've learned not to see. And so that's very true about the era in which the term telemedicine arose, which is the late 60s, early 70s. And it refers to the use of two-way television as a medical tool, which was at the time seemed to have enormous promise, which went largely unfulfilled. It's a fascinating part of the book. So could you tell us about that episode? Sure. So the term telemedicine. And again, you know, many of us are only freshly acquainted with this term. And I myself, I've been a physician for some decades at this point, and I really didn't become a telemedical provider really until the pandemic. And yet the word telemedicine is coined in 1971. There's a physician in Boston named Kenneth Bird, who sets up kind of an experimental media laboratory for showing that one can see patients at a distance. It was a relatively small distance, all things considered, but this took place in a clinic in Boston Logan Airport, which was set up as a satellite clinic for MGH at Massachusetts General Hospital, where Bird worked. And Bird had this alcove tucked into the Massachusetts General Hospital emergency department and a dedicated microwave line of sight beam that would actually help transmit an array of cameras, close-up lenses, microscopes from this specialized suite in Logan into the emergency department. It's about three miles away. And Bird's investigations here were basically to show a proof of concept, right? Like, could you deliver the same quality of care at a distance? Now, Bird's immediate supervisor at the Mass General Hospital John Knowles, the physician who went on to become the head of the Rockefeller Foundation, one of the most important foundations in funding you know, broader public health systems over the 20th century. And so when Knowles starts off at the Rockefeller Foundation, takes this proof of concept with him and is initially really enthusiastic that if you can deliver good enough care without having to be in the same building as a patient, well, this can produce a dramatic tool for democratizing access to care across the United States. And there's an office that's set up as part of Department of Health, Education, and Welfare to look into demonstration projects for telemedicine across different kinds of geographies of barriers to access, whether it's rural populations that are just geographically dispersed and can't access specialist care in the same way that people living in suburbs could, or whether it's the geography of access in urban inner city areas. And this is taking place in the you know, late 1960s and the early 1970s, in which this idea of a ghetto medicine, the idea that, that there are these urban centers that are losing through forces of white flight and other forms of urban decay, losing access to forms of health care. So in this combination of very different social geographies of healthcare access, telemedicine emerges as a technology to produce equity, that if everyone can actually gain access to cable television, then everyone could gain access to the ability to see a doctor at a distance. And what's really quite shocking in these stories is not only the different kinds of imaginaries that this is built around. So these are demonstration projects done on American Indian reservations with carceral populations, in Black and Latino neighborhoods in New York and Chicago, with rural farmers, rural white farmers in New England and Vermont and New Hampshire. But the, these programs, they work for the most part. So these proofs of concept show, in general, that high-quality healthcare could be delivered through telemedical means. But that form of success 
didn't actually lead to widespread availability of healthcare. Once these demonstrations showed that they worked, the federal funding pretty much stopped. And telemedicine had to go another few generations before actually growing into robust practice. And so what we see by the turn of the 21st century, rather than a public health overall equity and access vision guiding the spread of telemedicine, telehealth, we see something that is a much more uh, speculatively financed model of private and for-profit companies. And it's striking. You think about Johns Hopkins, which is in Baltimore City, is in a largely African-American community, has grown massively in the last 30 years by buying up real estate in that community. And so there's a deep irony. And Hopkins is certainly not the only major medical center with that growth trajectory. So there's a deep irony in thinking that you could improve care for a given patient population that is already, in many cases, very close within easy walking distance often of some of the most sophisticated medical care in the world. It's a very good point, which is to say the distance that telehealth is intended to bridge is not merely physical distance, but was always layered with social distances, economic distances, and understandings of racial, ethnic, socioeconomic divides in the fabric of who has access and who doesn't have access to healthcare in the United States. Now, at Johns Hopkins, you know, I've been in a lot of conversations with the telehealth offices here, which taken a substantial interest in the problems of equity. So why is it that when telehealth rolled out in an expanded form in the early years of the COVID-19 pandemic, that this technology that seemingly had the capacity to lower the barriers of who had access to healthcare actually could serve to widen disparities in access by reinforcing seamless access to care to those who could build a well-developed technological telehealth suite in their own home with a blood pressure cuff and a pulse oximeter and a high-quality web camera, for example, and those who couldn't. And I found this in my own practice that I practice in an an urban community health center, and I see a lot of patients who come from a historically minority-majority neighborhood, public housing projects across the street. About a third of the patient encounters that I had before the pandemic are in Spanish language with many patients from the Latinx community in Baltimore who may or may not have the ability to access formal health care at all. We don't ask about documentation status. It's part of the principle of being part of the safety net. And so many of the ways that our clinic functioned as a safety net, that anyone could walk in the door and be seen regardless of their insurance status, regardless of their citizenship status, were actually broken down in telehealth access, where to actually meaningfully access care, you had to almost already be in the system. And so there's this strange way that this technology that was initially developed to break down barriers actually reinforced them. And created a gradient where to the extent that telehealth could produce better care for those who could connect all of the devices to the system, well, that better care was not evenly distributed across all people. So I want to point out that my colleagues in the Hopkins Telehealth Office have been doing a lot of work to document this and to try and focus on how one learns from this experience to try to specifically design telehealth systems that work to improve equity and not reinforce disparities. So one paradox here is the telephone. So one of the things we've learned is that if you really want to have a telehealth system that is available to as many people as possible, it's crucial to have visits that are audio only because there are many folks who cannot or so far have not been able to set up full visual and audio access. So in the first few months of the pandemic, pretty much every encounter I had with my Latino patients wound up happening through audio-only means. Now, this is not because Latino patients can't use smartphones or don't have the ability to be part of video-assisted devices, but the system that was designed, the structure that was designed to carry telehealth was not equitably accessible and equitably distributed. So There's kind of two arms to this. One is how do you build a more equitable system so that every user is imagined in the design of the system? But the other is how do you rethink the system? And in the meantime, during the pandemic emergency, telephone-only visits counted as visits. They were reimbursable as visits. People could get care through them. One of the great threats that occurs now in the moment 
of the emergency of the pandemic being declared over is the possibility that these phone calls will no longer be covered or seen as a viable means of producing care. And so what I want to get at here is that when we think about a technology, whether it's the telephone, whether it's the smartphone, whether it's the entire smart suite of telehealth, the question of whether it augments disparity or reduces disparity is not one that is immediately built into the technology itself, but it's one that requires close follow-up to understand. Like We wouldn't have predicted immediately that supporting telephone-only visits was crucial to actually having a more equitable approach to telehealth in the pandemic, but that's what the evidence has shown us so far. Just like we wouldn't have immediately thought that telemedicine, this technology designed in the 70s to help reduce barriers to care, would augment them, and yet it did. So this is a longish answer, I realize, but what I'm trying to get across is that the problems of the technology are not inherent to the technology, but how those who design and maintain and check up on the functioning of a system think of as the users and whether all people are imagined as users or whether the technology is designed just to serve the interests of a few. You mentioned the vision of making medical records entirely electronic, which surfaces in the years immediately after World War II. And then is this promise for the medical establishment that seemingly still hasn't been fulfilled. What lessons do you draw from that history of trying to make medical records digital? And what inflection points in it do you see as critical? So I'm fascinated by the history of how how the medical record becomes electronic. And one of the things I've learned through my 19th century historian colleagues is that the problem of ordering a rational medical record doesn't start with uh, with the computer. And you can find similar debates that happen in the late 19th century. So John Harley Warner, who's a historian of medicine at Yale, has been working on a project of how the paper chart came to be. And, you know, the beginning of the 19th century, your average physician will just write whatever they want. There's a sort of a free form quality to how things are written. By the end of the 19th century, in most hospitals, the record has become systematized. There's sort of different physical tabs in it. There's a space to put objective data. There's a space to put x-ray findings, right? So there's a friction that occurs within the medical profession in the 19th century over even standardizing the paper chart, that somehow the patient might be being rubbed out of the picture, or the physician is losing the ability to capture the voice of the patient. If a kind of an over obsession with standardization, you know, takes the soul out of the way that medical knowledge is recorded. And I mention this because the same problems occur in the late 20th century, as medicine begins to conceive of the possibility of the computer in creating electronic medical records, and then deal with some of the frictions that emerge as it happens. Because one of the great advantages that is proposed from you know the, the late 50s onwards of what the computer will do for medicine is unlock all of the knowledge that is hidden away inside of these hastily scrawled patient records and turn every hospital, every health system into a database of medical knowledge that can then be systematically mined and understood. And so there's many different physicians, often with some background in computer engineering, that see this potential and really see what will happen when medical knowledge is all digitized is this great unleashing of human potential and precision medicine that will take shape. So we use this term precision medicine now as a 21st century concept, but really that fundamental drive behind it can be seen as something that the computer really helped bring about as a goal for a certain kind of physician engineer. But you can imagine immediately, David, the kinds of problems that then happen when one needs to have a complete taxonomy of all forms of diagnostic formations or all forms of symptom presentations that is used even to record the behavior or the well-being of any one patient, right? There's this intense friction that what was formerly a advanced and thoughtful and independent intellectual profession is being mechanized and automated. And this idea that the computer, the electronic medical record will function algorithmically, but fundamentally turn all physicians into technicians is already present from at least the late 1950s as well. So I mentioned both of these things, both the 19th century moment 
and the 1950s moment, because I think we see a lot of this playing out right now in conversations over burnout as this dark side of the electronic medical record. And if you if you look at the reasons, I mean, American medicine is seeing unprecedented levels of burnout. And the shift to electronic medical record is being listed as the dominant reason why physicians are retiring earlier than they had expected to. It's brought up frequently in discussions of the challenges of even training young physicians. I've had several residency directors, medical residency directors, tell me a common conversation in July is to say, well, you know, it's July, the new medical interns have been on the wards for a few weeks, and I can now identify everybody by the back of their head, obviously because of the sense that medicine now involves spending so much time staring at a computer screen rather than a patient. I don't want to put that out there as like the statement of what the electronic medical record does. Rather, I think it's important to recognize that the electronification of medical information holds both this promise and this peril. And the difference between them has to do with design and use, right? Who designs the system? How is the user imagined? And who is the user? Is the user the physician? Is the user ultimately the patient who now actually has an unprecedented form of access into their laboratory results or medical record? And I think that's where the politics of the technology, we tend to hide the politics inside the technology and think the technology is just the black box, but all of this politics is built into that box itself and sort of erupts out at various moments. One of the, the themes that runs through all three of your books, one of which is a history of generic drugs and the other of which is a history of how diseases are identified is the persistent fear on the part of doctors that they'll lose autonomy, that they'll lose relevance. How does that theme play out in your current book on telemedicine? And as you were describing, continues to resonate today. So that's a fascinating question, David. And I appreciate your attempt to give my entire work some retrospective coherence, right? Like one hopes that looking backwards, that one's you know different research projects as an author all seem to add up in the end. But I have been fascinated throughout my career as a physician historian in how new technologies, you know, provoke crises or opportunities, but also crises for those within medical practice and those whom medicine is supposed to serve. My first book, Prescribing by Numbers, is really about some of the challenges that happen when we understand that a lot of our current understanding of disease or into even whole disease categories now are shaped by therapeutic technologies are actually built around pharmaceuticals themselves. And then my second book on generic drugs was built around this question that we we tend to think of the pharmaceutical industry as sort of either very good when it's innovative or very bad when it is, uh, you know, extorting, you know, long monopolies and rent off of a patent-based monopoly system, but then virtuous once a drug becomes a certain age and is now generically available and off patent and realizing that actually the science is involved in trying to produce a good enough medicine, right? What it means to think about the standards so that any one pill of this drug can be treated as the same actually gets at a fundamental crisis that we have over the way that biomedicine is supposed to work, that we, we want to believe every piece is exchangeable. It isn't always, and that that provokes problems for us. So this is really extended into this present book by trying to shine a light on the role of communications technologies is actually a vital infrastructure to modern medicine, something that has actually always been a vital infrastructure to modern medicine, the way that we produce and circulate knowledge around health and disease, whether it's facts through medical journals that then also became electronically available, or whether it's the ability to talk to a practitioner that you may not be able to see directly, but you can talk to them over a telephone, tell them what's going on and be reassured what the proper course of action is. So I mention this in light of the present book, because these things are so easy not to see. When we accept a medium into our lives collectively as a society, right? Part of the strength of knowing that a technology has really transformed the way that we work, the way that we do our business, is when we don't even have to think about it anymore, right? That it's just there. I think the generic drug achieved that kind of a status. You know, you're prescribed a brand name, the generic will work just the same. It'll, it's exchangeable. It, it's, it, we shouldn't really even have to think of it as a problem. It's part of an infrastructure that you can trust in in modern medicine. And I think a very similar thing is said for 
you know, the telephone. Um, willfully, we're trying to make it right now for telemedicine. But in examining these older structures, the ones that became successful, and there are ones that we know they became successful because we don't even really think anxiously about them anymore, helps us get some insight into how our present anxieties over a new modality, a new technology will come to pass. You mentioned a book from the 1980s called The Complete Parent's Guide to Telephone Medicine, which, you know, the very title suggests how parents are consuming medicine in a way that they probably would not have in the the 50s. What's the relationship between these technologies and how patients experience medical services as opposed to how doctors think about their profession? Uh, So, you know, here we are talking over this podcast link. If we were talking on a telephone and you had called me up, I would have picked up my telephone and I'd say, hello. And I know how to pick up a telephone. And I know to say hello when I pick up the telephone. And some would say that that's a script, right? And that I had to learn to do that. But I can't remember when I had to learn to do that, right? I feel like generationally, that's been there for a while. And it's almost interesting to see if you can go back to when people had to learn that script, you actually get a sense of recovering that newness, like when an old technology like a telephone was a new medium, and people had to figure out what to do with it, for better or for worse. And you can do that through these books, a book like The Complete Parent's Guide to Telephone tells us of a moment in which parents are learning formal roles of how to actually act and how to script their behavior as parents, but also how to encode information about a child they're worried about in a digestible form that can be fed into the triage algorithms for the nurses that are staffing these hotlines. And we don't think of a parent calling a pediatrician hotline as a form of algorithmic care, right? Like we've learned to think of algorithms in new frames around what it is that AI will do for medicine today or the internet of things, but it was every bit explicitly talked about as algorithms in the 1970s and 1980s as mid-level medical providers like nurse practitioners who are increasingly staffing telephone hotlines are being given the authority to help walk people down decision trees that are algorithmically produced. And if we wind it back even further, I can show you excerpts from training films from the 1930s and photographic stills of teaching physicians how to hold telephones, right? So the you know, like, like hospital systems had consultants from the bell companies come in so that physicians could learn how to use a telephone because people were doing it wrong. And there was great anxiety. Among, and the American Medical Association issued a guide to telephones for American physicians. There's a concern that physicians might alienate the general public. And what I'm getting at here is a different sphere of how physicians come to understand a telephone as a potential labor-saving device, right? But also something that exposed them to new forms of risk, risk of malpractice for a patient that they're talking to and not seeing, right? Risks that the receptionist in their office might somehow use a telephone in an off-putting manner and drive a potential patient to a competitor. Whereas for patients, the use of the telephone is layered around different kinds of stratification. So in the late 19th century, when telephones start becoming an important part of medical practice, you know, it's not evenly distributed across American society who has access to a telephone. And if anything, access to smartphones in the 21st century is more democratically and sort of evenly represented across parts of American society than access to a telephone was in the year 1900. It was very much a predominantly white middle class affectation at first. And so as was at that time, access to a physician, right? This idea of who could pay for the service of a physician mapped very substantially onto who could pay for the service of a telephone. So I'm trying to suggest that over time, this concern of who we're talking about when we're talking about patients and parents, concerned family members learning to use the telephone, but developing anxieties around it, Versus physicians, and not just physicians, but also nurse practitioners and other healthcare professionals getting autonomy through using telephones, that the technology itself is involved in changing senses of agency in the American healthcare system. That being said, it's still really hard. I mean, I'm sympathetic to the task of scripting these encounters because this happens to me on a regular basis. I'll talk to a friend or a family member who is having a really hard time and can't manage to get through to talk to their physician. 
And I sometimes work with them to script, well, here's things you should be saying about yourself right now to be taken seriously by whoever is answering that phone call to make sure you get this appointment that you need. Because these appointments exist and you deserve one of them, but somehow we need to help you script your presentation such that you're legible as someone who needs care. So what's interesting to me is that it's not quite the right example to talk about picking up a telephone and saying hello, which we all know how to do and which gets us heard, that actually scripting oneself as a patient to be taken seriously by a healthcare system that is not well put together is actually harder now, I'd say, than it was in the 1980s. But I don't think there's any guides being published to help with it right now. Well, one thing that answer suggests is that the patient has to know how to interact with the system. The, the patient, I'm not sure social capital would be quite the right term here, but, but the patient has to have enough social sophistication, whatever the term is, to know what's going to resonate with the healthcare professional, you know, which is often going to correlate with you know, wealth, education, just general access. Yeah, I mean, we talk about health literacy as if there's sort of this univariate thing that, you know, how much do you understand about health? And it's kind of oftentimes seen as shorthand for socioeconomic status. You know, do you have a high school education, a university education? Are you yourself a healthcare professional? But I, I think what really gets people in or not to see their providers in a time of need is an ability to make themselves legible to a system that increasingly is designed to shut people out. A lot of your book is about the collection of patient data and its use. Does more data necessarily lead to better health care? It seems like you suggest that's at the very least an inadequate question, if not the wrong question, in thinking about communications technologies in medicine. The short answer I'll give you is no, that more data does not lead to better health care. Now, that doesn't mean that knowing more about one's health parameters, about one's risk predilections, about one's genomics can't be translated in meaningful ways to preventive and therapeutic strategies that will produce positive health outcomes. Clearly, that is true. And that's the basis of where we are, not only with preventive medicine in general, but with the new enthusiasm we've had recently for precision medicine. But I think the challenge we have has been a health system that has built itself around accumulation of more and more knowledge about bodies being observed in ways that can lead to forms of data overload, over-medication, and a broad overutilization of healthcare systems by those who become known as the worried well. And this statement I'm making right now is not a new statement. This was visible to people clearly by the 1970s, the expansion of a number of different preventive modalities leading to controversies about universal, say, mammogram screenings, or at what age colonoscopies make sense. And I'm taking two examples here of two preventive medical strategies that have proven worth, proven value, clearly can prevent cancers and prevent cancer deaths. And this has been demonstrated very clearly. But it is not the case that everyone in the United States should have a mammogram or a colonoscopy every year. And so coming up with this tailored response to what kind of preventive medicine is applicable and is best used has been a great challenge of the late 20th and early 21st century. Now, I mention this because much of the present conceit of precision medicine, and I'm not saying specifically even just within the realm of academic medicine or public health, but also in this broader speculative realm of companies like 23andMe, which produced, I'd say, really ambitious, far-reaching promises of the health benefits that would come from a near total knowledge of one's own genome, have not really been held fully accountable for their ability to fully deliver on the material promises of this. It, is, it's, it evokes a broader sense that more knowledge leads to better health. In the book, I tell the story of a series of automated multiphasic health test centers that began the Kaiser Permanente Center in Oakland, California, and began with a really very reasonable premise, right? That as public health goals shifted in the late 20th century, 
from an understanding of an, of an overwhelming burden of infectious disease towards an overwhelming burden of chronic non-communicable diseases like heart disease and cancer, the idea that more significant gains in public health would be gained by preventive screening devices to help detect disease before it started. Things like diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, breast cancer. And yet one understands a problem that immediately emerged that you're doing one or two or three preventive tests or screening on your patient. You know, you can sort of handle this as a possibility. But as the number of possible tests increased, and by the early 1960s, there's about 20 or so reasonable preventive tests that one could do that an individual physician couldn't perform these easily on their patients and also couldn't handle all of the analytic capacity of managing all of the risk scores at once. And so Morris Collin, who is a really fascinating figure, a physician and a computer science engineer who was a and chief of medicine at Kaiser Permanente saw an opportunity for using a mainframe computer to help with this. And so instead of trying to bring the computer into the clinic, which many of his colleagues had been trying to do at other hospitals with more or less success, he persuaded folks at Kaiser to build a new kind of clinic around this computer. And in an assembly line fashion, each patient at the door would essentially receive a stack of punch cards, feed one to the receptionist at the door, and then move clockwise through a series of about 20 different stations, each of which did a different preventive screening test, filled in the punch card, dropped it into a chute to go to a mainframe computer at the center, so that it took about you know two to three hours to work your way through all the station. But when you got out at the end, you received a computer printout, which was seen to be an amassing of all of the relevant data of your preventive health. And this was sent to your physician and given to you. And this, this concept of, an, of automated multiphasic health testing was quickly taken up across the country as the future of preventive health care. In fact, it even became the basis for it was going to be a third principle. Medicaid and Medicare had just been signed into law, and that this center in Oakland was going to be the basis of a new federal program. And this is in the 60s, by the way. Yeah, this is in, in the 19th. The punch cards would suggest. Yeah, but I want to point this out not as a kind of a, you know, freaky, like, can you believe that they did that kind of story, but to, to suggest that all parties in the healthcare system believed that this was the inevitable future of modern medicine, that it, it involved getting more data on every person. It used automation and computing and network mainframe computers to render possible a form of analytic prevention, a kind of data collection and amalgamation and storage and analysis that, that the, the individual human brain of an individual physician just couldn't actually handle. And with equipped with Bayesian probabilistic you know, inference patterns that could then derive likelihood ratios and produce a complex risk landscape tailored to any individual person. So those promises sound a lot like the kind of promises that we're now newly making for you know, cloud computing neural net bases based around genomic inferential data um, in the 21st century. Now, as a historian, I can't say they're the same, right? Like history doesn't repeat itself, right? But as Mark Twain says, it often rhymes. So we have this system that builds up in the early 70s. There's a set of federal demonstration programs. It is seen as a cost-effective way of building preventive health care in inner city clinics, in rural areas. And again, it's seen as a technology that is meant to promote equity and access. So how many more people can now access meaningful, precise, data-driven preventive care if they can have themselves analyzed by these computational assembly line clinics rather than the limited amount of physicians in the United States. Now, as you might imagine, the American Medical Association had a few things to say about this, but even the AMA believed that this was going to happen. So ultimately, why didn't it happen? Well, it has something to do with a series of studies over the course of the 1970s that really show that, that this kind of massive data accumulation could lead to overdiagnosis as much as it could lead to meaningful prevention. And this is part of the reason why every single person doesn't get a colonoscopy every year. Every single person doesn't get bone densitometry every year, that all of our diagnostic devices have some forms of error built into them. There's false positives as well as false negatives. But getting a test with a false positive 
isn't just a form of error, right? It's also a lived reality that one then actually has to contend with for the rest of one's life. One sees several iterations of this kind of problem over the late 20th century. Like in the closing decades of the 20th century, there was a similar enthusiasm for what was called the pan scan. Do you remember this? I do not. So there's a moment when pan scanning clinics opened up that would effectively suggest that anyone who comes in can get any form of imaging technology over their whole body. And we'll just take a look at your whole body and see what's going on. Because, you know, if you have a small cancer somewhere, better to know about it early rather than later. And no doubt there are some small cancers that could be detected in these formations. But as more and more people are getting scanned, even for reasonable uses, like say one gets an abdominal CT because one's having, you know, a, a trouble with some belly pain. It turns out, and we learned this from endocrinological surgeons, that the Lots of small nodules can exist in the adrenal gland. For example, the adrenal gland is this, you know, small kind of tricornered hat shaped gland that sits on top of your kidneys and makes adrenaline, among other things. But one of the problems that began emerging again in this time period is if you found these tumors, you'd ha- you, you're sort of obliged to do something about them. But then it turned out that many of these tumors would have just been sitting by themselves doing no harm for a long period of time. And, you know, taking them out didn't necessarily do any benefit. But when one discovered this incidentally found tumor, which became known as an an incidentaloma, and the incidentaloma, which starts being the adrenal gland, then becomes a generalized term in medicine as we find these findings and we don't know what they mean because we weren't looking for anything specific. But we believe that just getting more data would lead to better health often leads to unnecessary surgeries and oftentimes with actually really poor consequences so that more data can be harmful to your health. And we've learned that several times over in the late 20th century. But at the same time, as our current enthusiasm for precision medicine would suggest, it's a lesson that we forget. And a new modality for aggregating data and promising that aggregated data around individual lead to better health will still generate a new enthusiasm for whatever that platform is. So one of the fascinating comparisons you make in your book is between the telemedicine of the 1970s and Sesame Street. Just talk about that comparison. So I found myself thinking about Sesame Street increasingly as I was writing this book, because at a certain point, I felt that the story could easily become fatalistic. Right? And many historians of technology, many who exist in the space of social medicine where, where I you know, teach and practice, can complain about the technological fix, right? And suggest, well, the problem is that we try and solve social problems with technological solutions, and that's never going to work. We need to address the fundamental social problem. And that's partly true, right? The technological fix is a band-aid. We know that the root cause of health disparities in American society are forces like poverty, racism, endemic injustice that is built into the structure of who gets ahead and who does not in American society. But at the same time, if we just say that in an abstract way, we can get really fatalistic. And it strikes me that technology has been involved in substantial solutions. But the question is really who manages it, who conceives of the technology and what it does and who follows up on it. And this is where Sesame Street comes in, because around the same time that the first federal demonstration projects were funded to show that television could work in helping to reduce disparities in access to health care, the folks who ultimately founded the Children's Television Workshop started up with a similar federally funded grant proposal, which is to say, we believe that television can reduce disparities in educational access especially among inner city children, especially among children from minoritized and racialized backgrounds, and designed this intervention, Sesame Street, expressly around that basis. And one of the interesting things about Sesame Street is not merely that it succeeded and that it actually was, you know, became incredibly popular and a worldwide staple and and a touchstone for thinking about what early childhood interventions mediated through television could do to actually improve outcomes. And Sesame Street substantially improved outcomes and reduced disparities. But it didn't just do that. It's not just that Sesame Street was already baked in good and successful from the beginning. In fact, there are many critiques early on that Sesame Street might do just the same thing 
that telemedicine did and actually getting access to people who already had more access, right? This idea that, you know, I mean, I grew up in the 70s as a white middle-class suburban New Jersey kid watching Sesame Street. And so there's an irony built into it and its possibility, right? That, that Sesame Street, if it helped me in my education, but didn't help other kids in their education, might augment disparities in just the same way that telemedicine did in the early years of the pandemic. But what happened with Sesame Street is that many critics picked up on this issue and fed it back into the people at Children's Television Workshop that were developing and modulating what Sesame Street was. Sesame Street was too white. And so a more thoughtful, realistic, and accessible group of Black actors were brought in, both adults and children. Sesame Street was seen as not engaging enough with the Latino experience. And so a substantial amount of content, Spanish language content was brought in, but also likable, personable, relatable Latinx characters, adults and children brought in. And I just brought in to read script and lines, but also brought into the governance of the show itself. And what I mean to say is that to the extent that both telemedicine in the early 70s and Sesame Street, the children's television workshop in the early 70s, were these sort of high in the sky, let's use television to reduce disparities endemic to American society in both healthcare and education. The difference between them is not that the problem is easily solved in education, but not in healthcare, but that the children's television workshop, on the one hand, was reflexively governed in a way that constantly sought to make sure that it was reaching its target groups and that it had representation from those people who it was supposed to benefit on its governing boards and changed, like visibly changed its structure to actually achieve those goals. And that's one thing. And the other difference is that Sesame Street was not expected to become economically viable. It was allowed to exist and it was supported by foundations and civil society because of the perceived good it was doing, not as a business venture. One of the challenges that telemedicine faced early on in the 1970s is as soon as it was demonstrated to be functionally viable, the existence of federal support was cut off and it was assumed as something that would work if it could then become economically viable. And that's another key difference between telemedicine and the use of educational television. So the question I am left with is, why is it that we can perceive of education as a benefit in its own right and work as a society to support the meaningful uptake of new technologies and actually reducing barriers and increasing equity in education. But when it comes to healthcare, we then throw this back to the marketplace. Just a couple of questions drawn from your book on generic drugs. This is a sentence from that book, and I just want to get your reaction to it as both a physician and a historian of medicine. Americans consume more pharmaceuticals than people of any other nation. We spend more on pharmaceuticals than any other place in the world. And we have a greater tendency to pursue pharmaceutical solutions to existential and social problems. So I've often wondered why it is that the United States is so central to defining the pharmaceutical marketplace and why pharmaceuticals are so central to defining what it is to get healthcare in the United States. These two things have moved together. I don't think pharma, which is to say the political lobby you know, of unified research-based pharmaceutical firms, is solely to blame for this. I think there's some precondition that allowed pharma to exist. And yet at the same time, this has become naturalized, right? So that when we talk about reducing prescription drug prices in the United States, or when we talk about what was just enabled for the first time in the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, in which the Secretary of Health and Human Services now finally has the ability to negotiate drug prices for Medicare patients, that this is something that had kind of gone without saying for so many other you know G10 countries, right? If you're running a national health system in Northern Western Europe, and you're negotiating the prices of those drugs down. And one of the reasons that has been invoked as to why drug prices need to be so high in the United States is that everybody knows that it is the American market that drugs are developed for, right? So that if we were to reduce drug prices in the United States, that people all over the world would stop developing new drugs because it is this place that keeps the entire system aloft. 
And I use the word naturalized there because there's no way in which that needs to be necessarily true. But to the extent that many different parties, including lawmakers and lobbyists and regulators and manufacturers, behave as if it is true, it keeps perpetuating the sense that America is a pharmaceutical place and pharmaceuticals require America as a special place globally for their development. What's so interesting about this as well is that it's also patently untrue that this narrative we have that European and North American pharmaceutical companies drive all progress, you know, that's simply not the case. I mean, is this something you feel as a doctor? Like, how does this affect your practice? I mean, do you encounter cases where you wouldn't prescribe a pharmaceutical, you know, where maybe another physician might? I have a close colleague who's also a physician historian in Norway, and we've done some collaborative work, and I've gotten to go back and forth between looking at the Norwegian healthcare system and looking at the American healthcare system. And Norway has been very early on, you know, as this kind of a, an example of a, a socialized democracy with a strong um, national health system, accepted a small list of drugs, right? Realizing that we can do most things with a small list of drugs. And if we need more drugs, we can, you know, we can make special petitions for them, right? Whereas for the most part, until very recently, the American approach to care has involved a a close union between the pharmaceutical manufacturers and the American Medical Association to suggest that any restriction of the therapeutic freedom of an American physician represents the utmost evil of socialized medicine, right? And that Part of an American system of care involves being able to get the newest, the latest, even something that is maybe just marginally different than other competitors that you will have access to it. And that no rationalization system of considering certain therapeutics to be equivalent should be allowed. And I think, again, it's a form of hiding costs. There are substantial costs to a system that putatively allows any pharmaceutical to be available. And yet, in practice ensures that for a substantial portion of the population, no therapeutics are available. So what I'm trying to suggest, you asked a much more pointed question, which is how does it affect my practice? And so I'll go to Norway and I'll see a much smaller range of drugs that are available to prescribe, but I actually see the the, the bulk of the patient population doing just fine. In my own practice, you know, a lot of the people that I see in my clinic don't have health insurance or are fundamentally uninsurable. And sometimes I'm bumping up against a medicine that should be available to almost anybody, but simply isn't. So uh, you mentioned a phenomenon called Arum's Law, which is Moore's Law reverse. And of course, Moore's Law says that, that the, the computing power of a semiconductor doubles approximately every 18 months to two years. Under Arum's Law, the yield of FDA-approved drugs per billion dollars spent has halved every nine years between 1950 and 2010. So that even adjusted for inflation, we spend more and we get less. Has that continued to hold? And what accounts for that phenomenon in drug development? So I'm fascinated by this article on Eroom's Law, which really reverses Moore's Law, as you're pointing out, and establishes a sense that it is costing more and more for every newly approved drug through the FDA. And this is related to arguments that the drug industry itself uses in justifying the high price of prescription drugs, is that we will see a figure, well, what is the total number of investment on average for any successfully marketed FDA-approved product held up as an example of why the pharmaceutical industry is unique and deserves unique intellectual property patent protections and requires high prices, even in the face of its continued record as being the most consistently profitable sector of the American economy. And I think that Eroom's law does get at a fundamental problem of therapeutic innovation, which is that a lot of the significant groundbreaking therapeutic developments of the late 20th century may be understood somewhat as low-hanging fruit, and that subsequent developments are often subtler modifications which produce less substantial differences in morbidity and mortality, and yet take a long time to produce and get approved, and therefore cost even more money per new innovation. Now, 
I'm a historian and a physician, but that doesn't mean that I want to merely be limited to prescribing drugs that were available in 1922. Like I'm very happy as a practitioner of medicine in 2022 to have access to medicines that were very recently developed, or even just in the past few years to have access to novel COVID-related antivirals or the COVID vaccine itself. So I don't mean to suggest that therapeutic innovation in the pharmaceutical industry is a sham because we do have substantial innovations. But one of the problems we have is the exponential increase in costs that we seem to need to pay or be expected to pay for every subsequent innovation has really untethered this link between innovation and access that it seemed like we had hammered out in the mid to late 20th century. That even if it cost money to come up with a new drug, eventually with the passage of time, that drug would become affordable for everybody. And so we now have this really dangerous combination in which because it takes so long to approve a new drug and because the burdens of development are seen as so high, a new drug is afforded a naturalized costliness in which it is necessarily untenable to, to large parts of the population. And at some point, I think we're going to hit this crisis. We saw it happen on some level with these new hepatitis C drugs that emerged a few years ago, right? Like we know that Sovaldi, you know, produced by Gilead, was a breathtakingly new, efficacious, safe drug that transformed the management of hepatitis C and actually rendered hepatitis C newly possibly an eradicable disease, right? But we also know because of congressional investigations that Gilead pursued a pricing strategy that ensured to maximize return of value on marketing a higher priced version of that drug in a short term over a pricing structure that could have led to it actually being utilized in all places where it could be benefited from. And then that kind of approach is accepted and naturalized and understood. You know, it was almost many commentators at the time said, well, what do you expect? This company has been working for so long. It costs so much money to produce a drug. Of course, they're going to maximize the price they can get, even if that moves at loggerheads to public health. So what happens if a company finally delivered on this long-held promise of a truly effective drug for preventing Alzheimer's disease, right? We know the market, the potential market for a drug that would actually prevent Alzheimer's is gargantuan in this country. We also know that the price that that drug would be pitched at would be as much as the market would bear. And we know that the combination of those two things could just tank our healthcare system, but we have no mechanism yet to actually avoid this foreseeable calamity. It's almost as if we're hoping we don't develop an effective drug for Alzheimer's disease, because if we do, it'll break our healthcare system. And then finally, what are you working on now? Having finished one book, which I'm assuming took many years to complete, you know, what's your current project? Well, I think I'm fascinated with trash. And my current book is about how medical technology turns into garbage. And I don't mean obsolescence, but rather disposability. So when I was training as a medical student, the two different hospitals that I trained at, one of them used cloth drapes that were reusable, and the other had just shifted to disposable drapes. Now, pretty much all surgical drapes are disposable. Syringes are disposable. Diagnostic devices are disposable. And the COVID crisis has really produced, among its many effects, a staggering amount of garbage. Like we've learned now to see just discarded masks or the sort of binask diagnostic test popsicle littering the street. But it occurs to me that we've allowed this to happen, right? So that starting in the 60s, syringes, which used to be reusable precision glass and steel devices, shifted to plastic and began to clutter landfills. And I don't know if you remember this, I have very vivid memories in the 1980s of when the 50-mile stretch of shoreline of New Jersey had to be shut down because of thousands of syringes that were washing ashore. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so what's so interesting about the syringe tides of the 1980s is that medical waste became visible really for the first time on a national scene as a crisis, the sense that actually the technologies we develop to heal ourselves, right, can also pose new ecological threats. And the great paradox of the disposable syringe is that disposability in medicine is supposed to reduce contamination. That's why we kind of get a pass where so many other sectors are really looking at their carbon costs. But healthcare is allowed to be wasteful because disposability is seen to be kind of necessary because it reduces contamination. But what was happening in the 80s when syringes began washing ashore and New Jersey sued the state of New York and then there were congressional hearings into it and it helped define medical waste. 
is this realization that these disposable syringes actually produced contamination, that kids were running on beaches and getting pricked by needles that might contain hepatitis or AIDS. So I'm mentioning this because I think it is very important to take an understanding of medical technology and place it in a broader understanding of climate change and understand that we have designed a system that valorizes waste that doesn't have to. And I'd like us to rethink how that came to be, what decisions made it take shape, and how we might rethink our relationship to disposability and reusability. I'll say two more things about it. One is that during the COVID crisis, as hospitals couldn't find N95 respirators, some turned to an older technology called an elastomeric respirator, which you may know involves a sort of a more rigid rubber mask with cleanable membranes on it. So it's reusable. The mask doesn't wind up in the trash. You wash it off, you can use it another day. They worked great. And once the supply chain problems you know, resolved somewhat, folks threw those elastomeric respirators out as well and went back to using disposable ones. But it reminds us that we have a system that valorizes disposability but doesn't need to. The second thing I'll say is that we have this fascinating moment that happened in which disposable medical devices or single-use medical devices have become so prevalent that when the problem of reusability became visible, the FDA, rather than trying to encourage reusable medical devices, developed a new set of regulations for the reuse of single-use medical devices. So we have a regulatory category for reusable single-use devices rather than saying, Let's emphasize reusability over disposability. So the kind of torturous place we get to reminds ourselves that we build our system piece by piece until it becomes incongruous and impossible. And history offers a set of tools to rethink why we did that and whether we need to in the future. So that's the new project. It's currently called Syringe Tides. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me here today, David. It's a real pleasure. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus. Mm-hmm.